0: You're listening to the podcast of Eucharist Church in San Francisco, a community of faith seeking to live all of life in reference to Christ. Join us now for this week's message. Hi, this is Father Kyle. A quick note before you hear this week's sermon. Due to a technical difficulty, we failed to get the first 30 to 45 seconds of the sermon recorded. As the sermon picks up, Father Ryan is just beginning to explain the context of our gospel passage for the day. Enjoy. So all this happens in chapter 11, and then in chapter 12, we're told about how Mary and Martha get the idea of throwing a little feast in honor of Jesus and in celebration of their brother's second chance at life. Martha, uh, true to what we know of her, uh, from the other accounts in the Gospels, took care of preparing and serving the food. Lazarus, freshly back from the dead, was at the table, kicking it with Jesus, functioning as host. And John indicates that others were present there as well, presumably the 12 apostles, uh, since they pretty much came with Jesus wherever he went. And so it was in the midst of this joyous dinner party that Mary did something that grabbed everyone's attention. She took out a bottle of perfume made from a plant called spikenard, which I have a picture of here, um, which only grows in the Himalayas at elevations between 10,000 and 16,000 feet. So it's kind of a rare plant here. And because of the distance from which it came and the difficulty of harvesting it and producing it, nard was quite expensive. This was a luxury item. John, as the narrator, tells us that it was costly, but it isn't until a few verses later that we find out how costly Uh, When Judas refers to its actual value, it was 300 denarii. Now, most of us don't know much about first century monetary units, so that doesn't mean much to you. But for reference sake, a denarius was a day's wage in the first century. So you're talking about roughly a year's worth of salary. Go ahead and translate in your mind um, how much you make in a year and think about that. And then you can get a feel for what Mary is actually doing in this moment here. So in the middle of the meal, Mary takes out this exorbitantly expensive perfume and she cracks it open and she begins pouring it on Jesus' feet. And then she does something that would have been absolutely scandalous in her day. She uncovers her hair, takes off the covering, something that women would never do in public or to anyone who was not their husband. She not only uncovers her hair, but she lets it down and then she begins wiping and cleaning his feet with it. Now, feet are pretty much universally disgusting to us. But feet in a time and place where most people, if they could afford shoes, only had sandals, so everything's open-toed sandals, and where there is very limited access to bathing facilities, and where there's no medicine to address infections, these are the kind of feet you don't want to touch. I know we think highly of Jesus, but I can promise you that his feet were disgusting. But here is Mary pouring out liquid, which is more valuable ounce for ounce than gold, on Jesus' feet. I just want you to picture the scene for a moment. Everyone's eating dinner, and it's a joyful time together, and they're savoring delicious food and sipping the best wine that money could buy. And then Mary does the stunt, breaks open the bottle of perfume, and starts acting in a totally bizarre manner. If you're there at the the table, it's impossible to ignore what's going on. The smell of the perfume floods the room. And everyone is watching as a woman begins to do something incredibly inappropriate to a man who is not her husband. She seems completely overcome by emotion while she appears to do something totally unreasonable. And to make matters worse, Jesus lets her do it. He could have stopped her. He could have pulled his feet away and gently told her that it was inappropriate just to, save the perfume for another time. He could have done any number of things, but he doesn't. He he allows her to continue, maybe even welcomes what she is doing. And so everyone is watching what's going on, and and the tension in the room is slowly building. It's pretty thick, silent. And then finally, Judas breaks the awkward silence. Rather than directly confront Mary's socially inappropriate behavior, he says something that on the surface sounds very ethically oriented, uh, very high-minded, something that might make him appear to be noble. But there's a dagger that's hidden in his comment. His his comment appears to be directed at Mary, but its actual intended recipient is Jesus. Jesus. You see, in his mind, Judas has already dismissed Mary as absurd, as unreasonable. She's just a foolish woman to him. But Jesus, well, Jesus should know better. And so Judas asks this question. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? At one level, it seems like a pretty straightforward question. But at another, it's a totally loaded question meant as a jab. So here's my translation of what I think Judas is really saying to Jesus. You say you care about the poor. So how can you sit here and let a woman disgrace herself while pouring out an entire year's worth of salary on your stinky feet? The narrator of the Gospel of John makes it clear that in a parenthetical comment that follows that Judas had no noble thoughts in his mind when he said this. He was just greedy. He was a thief, according to John. But I have to wonder how many of the others in the room were thinking something along the lines of what Judas said. Maybe not so much about the money having to go to the poor, but about Jesus allowing a woman to act this way. Allowing a woman to adore him in this gratuitous manner. And not just allowing, but even defending what she does. This scene is, without a doubt, the most awkward moment recorded in the Gospels. And it must have made quite an impact on the disciples because all four accounts of Jesus' life preserve a version of this story. Interesting. Interesting. Long after Jesus had died and risen and ascended to the Father, the disciples were still thinking about this particular moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's the kind of thing you can't get out of your mind. It sticks out. It pushes against the paradigm of what seems normal and reasonable. And even today, when we read the story, Mary's behavior seems to us to be bizarre and strange. She seems unreasonable, maybe even borderline inappropriate. What are we to make of this, especially in light of the fact that Jesus did not view her actions as sinful? He didn't even seem to find them unreasonable. In fact, he seems to indicate in what he says that she might be the only one in the room who is really actually thinking straight. She understands something. That nobody else seems to get. We might say that from Jesus' perspective, she is acting with unreasonable reasonableness. So we should ask ourselves, what is it that she sees so clearly that everyone else is missing? What is it that would cause her to do what she did which didn't happen for her in a moment of confusion or in a moment of weakness, but in a moment of piercing clarity. I'd like to suggest that something parallel to what Mary experienced is found in what we heard in our scripture reading from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians is a letter written by Paul, St. Paul, who is writing from prison as a man who appears to many to be as unreasonable and out of his mind as Mary was at that evening uh, party many years ago. Paul was one of the great and -and up-and-coming rabbis of his day. He had flawless pedigree. He was from a great Jewish family. He was the equivalent of a Harvard-educated elite in his day, having sat at the feet of the greatest rabbi of of his era, a man named Gamaliel the Great. He was a gifted student with the, of the Jewish Torah who was universally respected by the Jewish aristocracy. And he was climbing the ranks of power faster than everyone else around him. But one day, something happened. And from that point on, everything that he had done, everything that represented something of an accomplishment or something of importance or something of value for him, suddenly became unimportant. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, after he had described, uh, after he's described a summary of his flawless pedigree and his great accomplishments, he goes on to explain to the church in Philippi how he now views these things. He says this, yet whatever, I, whatever gains I had, These I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What he's saying is that all of these things about his life that he thought were assets, all the things that he thought advantaged him in some way, all of the things he had sought to build his identity around, all of these things he viewed as nothing, they didn't matter. He goes on to say in verse 8, for his sake, that's Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish. And if you remember the old King James version, it says there, dung, which is what the Greek word means. He considers it nothing more than a pile of crap. In order, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. When Paul met the resurrected Jesus, that famous day on the road to Damascus, it completely and totally altered his understanding of the world. From this point onward, his entire notion of what was reasonable and what was unreasonable was turned inside out and upside down. Something about meeting a man who had come back from the dead shifted the logic of everything about life. Suddenly, everything was crystal clear. And what he saw was that only one thing, only one thing in life mattered. And That one thing is what he says in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As far as Paul is concerned, he would happily liquidate his assets, all of them. He would willingly forgo any privileges afforded to him by his education and by his societal status. He would even enthusiastically subject himself to suffering and even death if it meant that he could be more identified with Jesus. For Paul, only one thing matters, knowing Jesus both Mary and Paul operate with a singular focus to their lives. To everyone all around them, they appear to be unhinged and unreasonable. Mary is so overcome with affection and so overwhelmed by gratitude for Jesus that she willingly pours out her life savings on his feet. She gets down and she rubs his feet with her hair. She so overcome with love for Jesus that she throws herself upon him in ways that can be totally misunderstood by everyone else. But she doesn't care. It doesn't matter if everyone else thinks she's a raving lunatic because only one thing matters. Fully identifying herself with Jesus. And if you read this story and you find yourself wondering, like, was Mary romantically interested in Jesus? Was this her throwing herself upon him? I think the answer is perhaps surprisingly yes. I don't think we should miss this, the, the deeply sexual nature of what's going on here. I have your attention, I know. <laughs> now, before you start throwing things at me, let me clarify what I mean. Mary wasn't trying to make a move on Jesus. She wasn't trying to seduce him. I believe she was merely operating from the deepest part of her being, from the deepest part of what it means to be human. And in doing so, she was anticipating the future of God's people. She was, in a sense, spousally pledging herself to Jesus. She made herself vulnerable to Jesus in a way that only a wife would do to her husband. And Jesus responded by defending her as a husband. Jesus didn't shame her. Jesus didn't push her away. He understood. He defended her. Now, it might make you slightly uncomfortable to hear me suggest this, that Mary and Jesus were in some way enacting a husband and wife dynamic. Um, There are whole stories about this that people tell, usually with Mary Magdalene, who's a different Mary. And I'm not going down that road. It's a different road but I think it's a beautiful and important layer to the story and one that points us all toward the future that God has in mind for all of us. What I'm saying is that Mary was merely anticipating the end of the story. Last weekend, uh, you may have noticed that I was gone. I was out on the East Coast officiating a wedding for Tom and Michelle Ruby's uh, daughter. Uh, It was a wonderful and beautiful wedding. And as I was preparing the homily for the wedding, I was struck in a new way by the spousal nature of the entire story of Salvation. We who have pledged ourselves to Christ in baptism are living in anticipation of that great moment described at the end of the book of Revelation, the great wedding supper of the Lamb that we mentioned each week here, that moment when we, the feminine bride of Christ, are finally completed, finally joined together eternally with Jesus the groom. The whole story of salvation is unmistakably sexual. It begins with a wedding between the first man and the first woman. Adam and Eve, we call them in in Genesis. And it ends with us becoming one flesh with Christ, united as a bride and groom who vowed to remain as one flesh until death do us part. Except in this case, there is no death. And thus no parting. And so what Mary was doing, whether she fully comprehended it or not, was entrusting herself to the great lover of her soul. She was donating herself fully and completely like a bride on her wedding day to the one who came to donate himself completely for her. She got it. Long before the 12 bumbling idiots that we call the apostles figured out what was going on, Mary alone seems to have grasped the heart of the gospel. She alone seems to have absorbed the purpose of Jesus' incarnation. She alone understood the heart of God. And whether she could articulate everything that she felt in words or not, I don't know, and actually I don't care. Because her courageous, single-minded, passionate, all-in response to Jesus proclaims the gospel louder and clearer than any carefully worded and well-reasoned doctoral dissertation ever could. She got it. The question is, do we get it? My wish for you and my wish for myself is that we would be like Mary. That we would be single-minded in our passionate love for Jesus. That we would be fully, that we would fully and completely entrust ourselves to him. That we would risk being seen as unreasonable. That we would, that, that, that we would endure being misunderstood. That we would even allow ourselves to be seen as scandalous because of our love for Christ. My greatest hope for us is that we would willingly and enthusiastically, like Paul, regard everything as rubbish in light of the surpassing value of knowing Christ and being found in him. A number of people who have visited our church over the past couple of years have told me that one of the things they appreciate about our church is the intellectual rigor, um, the way that we are serious about thinking deeply about the gospel to the best of our ability. And I must say that I'm grateful that we have a church where we don't shy away from loving God with all of our mind. I'm a bit of a nerd, and I tend to be intellectually oriented, as you probably have discovered. But if I had to choose, if I had to choose between being a church that was intellectually rigorous and deeply reasonable, or being a church that, was passionate, that passionately loved Jesus with an unreasonable love like Mary, it's not even a question in my mind, hands down. I'd choose the pattern laid out by Mary. And the reason is that the gospel is not primarily a set of ideas. It's a relational reality. You could possess all the best thinking in the world about marriage. You could read books and become an expert on marital dynamics. You could develop models and systems and training programs about marriage. But none of this is a substitute for actually loving and trusting another person. And what Mary reminds us is that everything about the gospel comes back to vulnerability, to love, and to trust. In response to the total self-donation of God to us in Christ, we, you and me, each of us here, are invited to give ourselves wholly and completely in return. Just as Mary did that evening 2,000 years ago at that awkward dinner party in Bethany. And so, may we truly embody the unreasonable love demonstrated by Mary. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's take a moment. Lord God, thank you that you have loved us with a self-donating love. Thank you for Jesus who poured out his life for us. Thank you that you have invited us into relationship with you. May we respond like Mary. May you remove every barrier in our lives, our own pride especially, any accomplishments, any wealth, anything that we consider to be an advantage or an asset in our lives. May we consider it to be nothing, in light of knowing you and being found in you. Will you make us, will you make this church a church of passionate love for you? This we pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Eucharist podcast. For more information, you can visit our website at eucharistsf.org.